All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up? This is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. Anybody who knows this podcast is well aware that our interviews can last for hours. So often, we split them into two parts. It also gives listeners a suspenseful reason to come back next week or check their podcast feed for more episodes. Back in 2022, we sat down with L.A. Reid for what became a rare three-part interview. Part one of L.A. Reid's three-part QLS recalls his childhood in Cincinnati, playing the Indianapolis club circuit, working with Midnight Star, and meeting Babyface. This classic episode was taped in July 2022. Please rate, like, and subscribe to this on your podcast feeds. Check back for new episodes and follow our new YouTube page at QLS. You know good and well. You might as well get some water, dog. Oh, no. I'm going to mess that store up all I can. <laughs> you need yeah. water. Hey, you need some snacks or something, bro? Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I was already told at the top of the show, <laughs> make this quick. Nah. <laughs> anyway. Straight up. Nah, fuck quick on this one. <laughs> we going in. All right. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is another episode of Quest Love Supreme. How are you guys? That's nice. Yeah, anyway, exactly. So, <laughs> if you know me, based on the show, you, you know there's a, a particular type of interview that I that we all love to nerd out on, and this is no exception. I guess today, you know, he is former super executive chairman and CEO of Epic Records, former. Uh, chairman CEO of Def Jam, former president and CEO of Arista, and also his own uh, face imprint, LaFace Records. Sir. Not to mention, oh, former award-winning songwriter and and producer, and former drummer, and probably the most moisturized band of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not to mention, I mean, look, y'all know me. It's gonna take 45 minutes once I start reading off the accolades. Look, you, you already know it, man. Like you literally know it. 
two occasions. This guy, a girlfriend, this guy, Roni, rock with you. Don't be cruel. This Ooh, guy, ah. into the road, this guy. Ooh, yeah. Uh, love should have brought you home last night. This guy, not to mention the Axie sign. Name him Tony Braxton, Damian Dam, Goody Mom, Jer- Jermaine Jackson, Usher. Outcast. Outcast. I, I can name them all. Ladies and gentlemen, we finally have him. I feel like this is the sequel to the Babyface episode. It Please, is. it really is. Nah, yeah, this is the the baby fate, the baby safe episode. That was Breaking Bad. This is Better Call Saul. Exactly. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Yo, this this guy is so legend that he even dropped me from the label and took me back on my birthday. <laughs> no, no. Yo, I got dropped the morning of my birthday and came Yo. back the night of my birthday. <laughs> 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 Ooh, this is going to be a long one. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a long one. <laughs> Please welcome L.A. Reed to call some Supreme, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. By the way, that's inaccurate, but go on. <laughs> well, you know how dramatic Richard Nichols was, so maybe Rich was just using a Jedi mind trick on me to get the album done. <laughs> oh, so possible. Right, yeah. Rich so woke real. me up for my birthday at 6 in the morning like, Amir, the Roots just got dropped off Def Jam. I, I, I was like, no. Literally, I was all depressed. And then, like, oh, I, I think we met, didn't we? I, I called you up, and I literally called you up and I left a message. I was like, come on, dog. It's my birthday, man. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Oh. That's, that's my favorite story of all. Look, it, every every artist has uh, a CEO executive story. And I'm glad that's my story because it could have been with you uh, hanging me out the window mm. of my ankles <laughs> or something or <laughs> or any any other unsavory CEO story. Uh, how are you? How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm entertained already. This is already fun. So, LA, uh, where right now? Where are you speaking to us from? I am in Los Angeles in the studio. Uh, we have a studio in Studio City, and I'm uh, I'm in I'm just I'm in the studio. All right, my favorite place. Uh, are, dare we ask you uh, what you're doing in the studio? Is this uh, top secret? Uh, no, you know, I'm always digging and, and just, I love the idea of being around people and I just have a lot of writing camps and, um, some writers and producers come by, meet with people. I'm just always looking for music, you know, but right now I'm actually working on Usher. Hey, whoa. Okay. And it feels Watch this. so good. Watch this. Yeah, so this, this is Camp Usher time. Yes, Camp Usher. That's right. Usher's tiny desk, uh, performance is probably a pleasant, well-needed jolt in the right direction of reminding people. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, I'd, I'm, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, the versus comedy hour <laughs> also played a part. I missed it. You are. Right. I best, heard about it. it. it you the best right. comedy show in history. <laughs> Needless to say, we're happy to hear there may be a Chris and Usher versus. That is the uh, dream. Four, five, five hours, six hours, seven hours. <laughs> I think sometimes people should sit those out. That's my opinion. Like, I don't think that mm-hmm. I don't think they're for everybody. I think because I, I don't know the way that it initially came to us. I wish it would have stayed there, which was mainly about like two producers 
yes like working on beats at the same time you know like the buster and what alchemist was the first one or was it not the buster alchemist the uh just blaze uh swizz and no original swizz and tim you said the first yeah one. that was yeah. first yeah that's how that's even before just blaze and alchemist if I remember, if we talk about verses, how verses started, that was yeah. Well, I meant the 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 pre verses. Oh, okay. There was like there was this thing where like Just Blaze and Alchemist would do this back and forth thing. You don't remember? Yeah, the, I remember the that. Buster yeah, yeah, Rhymes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh huh. The Buster Rhymes, uh, yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But for me, I was kind of hoping that that was more the modus operandi where it wasn't about you know, winner take all. But I think, you know, once the pandemic started, people just wanted entertainment. And that seemed like a logical way to keep people entertained, of course, with the best A-list talent. But eventually you're going to run out of A-list talent. Right. And then what do you do? It was supposed to be the classics, too. It was supposed to be like up until, you know, a certain age kind of era range, I felt like, too. And they kind of Well, yeah. now just think it's finding somebody that has had, 10 to 15 notable hits yeah. right which is exactly. that 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 was right. gonna run dry quickly <laughs> you know what i mean and so <laughs> that's funny because i don't always like to to bring light to it but the truth is we're hard pressed to find artists with 15 to 20 hits facts that's hard yeah. it is and those that have it aren't with us anymore Right. And so the well is I mean, we're in we're in a place right now where it's diminished returns and, you know, you got to let people in the door. Like lately, I will say for my own group, you know, we've been having this sort of conversation with the powers that be at least the last five to six years. Like you have to let us in the door. Like who the hell is left? You know what I mean? Right. So it's sort of like I'm not saying that there was a begrudging. All right coming you know like that sort of thing but um but who I, could battle y'all that's kind of hard that's hard anyway that's a we're not even built like that yeah but, that's what know. i'm saying there is no there's the but roots. we we did we did get in we did get an offer once I, I guess i can mention it now yeah please tell everybody because you told us please yeah. um the roots and goody mob had a versus on the table that we weren't able to do mm. really wow odd, odd pairing but you know i mean and that is, I mean, mm. I get it though. I actually get it. As odd as it is, I kind of get it. Mm. Um, well, I mean, but you, you know. guys don't have rivals. The truth is, you don't have rivals because mm -hmm. we don't live in an era. Of first, there's no black bands. First of all, you're the only black band that in in forever. Um, so you you would actually have to go back and battle like like cameo or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I, I would have. We we talked to uh, our our last episode was with Larry. Amazing episode, by the way. Um, no, I, I think probably if it were to come down to that, we probably would do like D'Angelo did, which is like have roots and a whole bunch of friends come by and do Ooh, something fun. Anyway, no, we're, we're wasting time here. L.A., what was your very first musical memory? Shit. <laughs> first musical memory ever? Like, yes. ever? Your first thought of music. What, like? What's it might be it might be a little hazy, but I think that it was growing up Cincinnati, Ohio, in the kitchen, small kitchen, transistor radio in the window. And I think it was it's my party and I cry if I want to. Mm. Leslie. Yeah. Yes. I think it was that. Cause I for some reason I remember 
that name Quincy Jones. Don't know why, but like I knew that name as a baby and it yeah. never left, you know. Uh, I think it was that or it was something from Motown, right? Okay. Like one of those dancing in the streets or uh, I, I can't exactly remember. I was very young, but um, the the one that the one that got me, though, the one that like the life changing moment yeah. was when I heard Give the Drummer Some and and Cold Sweat, James Brown, oh, wow. that mm-hmm. moment. Like yeah. that was that the world stopped. So speaking of Cincinnati, oh, by the way, uh, in case our listeners don't know, not many people know that Quincy Jones produced Leslie Gore's It's My Party. That's his very first, very first hit as, as a as a pop producer. I was going to say that I I noticed, at least from what Booty told me um, and just from observing that. Anyone who's in proximity of King Records and their whole operation had their life changed, either as someone that works inside of King Records or the studio or the factory or someone like Bootsy Collins did hung in the alleyway and just hoped maybe one day we'll get used or something like that. Yep. But because there's a five year, a five to 10 year age discrepancy of you and Bootsy's generation. Right. How did the James Brown Ohio effect? And plus, this also explains why Ohio is the funk capital of the United States, because I mean, basically, King Records moved their operations to Cincinnati and basically at a time period in which the ripple effect started happening, even in other cities like funk just spread throughout Dayton, Columbus, Cleveland right. and all over. So just as a 10 year old, were you aware of James Brown's presence in the city? I feel like I didn't know it officially, but I felt the presence. Like the first concert I ever went to was a James Brown concert at the Cincinnati Convention Center. And I hung outside and I met Maceo Parker. And that was that was a big deal for me, like literally walking down the street outside the convention center and also king records was like a few doors down from like my karate school as a kid Mm. right so i would go to karate school but (laughs) and when i and wait on the bus right take take the bus home afterwards and i knew that that was king records so i never saw a soul but i would just stare at it I, i felt drawn to it but then as i got like slightly older all the musicians in Cincinnati were all so impacted by Bootsy and James Brown, but more Bootsy, to be honest, right? James was like the godfather of soul, but Bootsy was our local superstar. So everything that Bootsy did, we all, you know, aspired to do. Bootsy holds his bass this way. So you hold your bass like Bootsy, right? Mm -hmm. Or Bootsy wears these kind of shoes, or he has these, everything was about, Whatever Bootsy did was the magic, you know, and uh, he, he was like a god to us. James Brown needed Bootsy more than Bootsy needed James, even though Bootsy needed that guidance. Right. Yeah. James Brown needed that validation of, you know, the next generation respecting him. And what uh, was the first song? Super bad. Very first song was Sex Machine. Sex Machine was Bootsy. Very first one. Yeah. Okay. You got it. There's there's an amazing. All right. So they, they they did that song in two takes. And there's a there's a really amazing, rare dialogue for James. Like if you listen to James's outtakes, 
normally it's sarcasm or I mean, not like mean spirited, but like if they mess up or whatever, you'll 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 hear them like chastise the engineer or something like that. But when they do the second take of Sex Machine, there's like a 45 minute conversation of James just like you hear him walking in the studio and tell them like like being encouraging almost, right. which is rare for James Brown. But he's like obviously knows like these these six, 17, 18 year old kids are really, really scared right now. And he's just, oh, no, you got it, man. Like you, you can do it. And da, da, da. Like, which is. Oh, wow. <laughs> compared to the rest of what James does, like on the other takes or whatnot, like it's almost like he knew that he was dealing with children. You know what I mean? Right. And so he that, had some sensitivity. And 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 he exactly. was yeah that's great. Wow. So you're a drummer, sorta. No, you're you're a drummer. <laughs> I I play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, first of all, your home situation. What what was your uh your domestic home situation then? Like, was your family musically inclined? Your parents? In my immediate family, meaning my mother. My sisters, we had a stepfather there. I never knew my father, but we had a stepfather there uh, occasionally. Uh -huh. He was there. I'm being mean. He was there. Um, okay. But they played music because they had poker games all the time, right? So they always played music, and it was always kind of a, the weekends were festive. And uh, eventually I became, like, the guy to play the records at a Ooh. very young age, right? Man. And yeah. I, and I could play what I wanted to play, you know? So I played Sly and Family Stone, or I played what? War, or I played, you know, whatever I wanted to listen to at the time. Um, and James Brown and, you know, uh, King Floyd. I remember that song. Was uh, it a situation where you where they said, let me see what you got? And the first no, time you played a good no, record? No, it was just like the record player would stop. And, uh -huh. they, and, they're all, and they're all into the game. So I just walk over and play what I wanted to play. And no one said anything. Okay, so question. For them, for that music of that time, would that be the equivalent of, say, like my nephew or my god kids putting trap music on when, say, the adults in the room want to hear something older? Yeah. Like more Ray Charles. So, like, they love Bobby Womack. They just like, you know, Communications album, mm -hmm. I think it was. Like, they, right. they like, they like things that felt more like the blues, okay, more soul blues. Mm -hmm. And, and funk was the music of the kids. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Were your people and, from and, Ohio? Yeah, everybody's from Ohio. Yeah. Wow. So I have an uncle. I had an uncle. He passed away. And he's a drummer. But he is a jazz drummer. Right. And I remember him taking me to jam sessions with him when I was very, very young. And he set up a set of drums in his uh, in his apartment. And you know, he lived in an apartment. So you couldn't like you couldn't really play. So I was just playing with my fingers. But I was playing James Brown mm -hmm. the best I could. <laughs> And he was like, that's not music. Oh, man. That's not music. Yeah, that's not music. Jazz guy. Yeah, yeah jazz guy. Like, that's not music. <laughs> okay, okay, I got it. So I knew early on, like, okay, I see I see what the purists are thinking here, you know, versus we. that was commercial. James Brown was commercial. Hey, hey by the way, you're a, music, you're a real musicologist. Can I ask you a question? So did, did Miles Davis, no, who ripped off who? Oh. Uh, so what? Yo, so what? Miles was first. Pee Wee, uh, Pee Wee, uh, Ellis. Yes. 
yeah, went on record to say that, you know, all those and actually all those guys thought alongside your uncle, as in I'm a jazz musician, but let me just make some money on the side and play this pop stuff that I don't care about. And right. then I'll have a jazz career. And basically, Pee Wee Ellis would basically steal jazz arrangements that he liked and incorporate in James Brown. So the whole cold sweat did it. Uh-huh. Is essentially the what? Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's 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 weird for me because like I know, and that's the thing where even today, like just to fight my urge to not say something derogatory to, you know, another generation about their music, you know, like for instance, like trap is about to be old school and now drill is replacing that. Oh, and, good Lord. <laughs> right. And so the, the temptation to not roll my eyes in the air. Right. Is, is heavy. Right. right. And I don't, I don't want to be the guy that's just like performatively co-signing everything just to make me look young and me look hip. Mm. Right. But you know, it's, it's weird how, the timeline of music lasts, whereas something could be totally foreign to you, but seems like so innovative to the next generation. It's funny because they both share a regional commonality, too, because a lot of New Yorkers, jazz musicians, because my dad is 80 something years old. And he was a jazz musician. They thought James Brown was country, just like how some New Yorkers may think about trap and, you know, other music. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 definitely that. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. How old were you when you felt that you really developed your drumming skills? I was probably about 15 and I actually liked the story. I, I was in a choir class. Interestingly enough, I was the only one in the choir class that didn't have to sing. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. My music teacher was incredible. His name was Terry Brown and he was the choir teacher and he had a class that all the talented people in school were in this class, all the singers, all the, you know, the performers, the guys that knew how to do the harmony. And I was just drawn to the class and he liked me and he let mm -hmm. me hang out in the class, although I wasn't in the choir. And uh, I ended up like standing there for hours and hours each day. Uh, but he had a group outside of school uh, called the Mystics. And it was a three man singing group. It was Terry Brown. It was Gerald Brown. And I don't remember the third guy's name. And one day, I'm walking down the hall. I'm probably I'm about 15 years old. I always carry my sticks in my pocket. I bet you could relate to that. Right. Uh, I just always kept them with me. Right. And he stopped me in the hall and he said, hey, you have you have a set of drums? I was like, yeah. What are you doing this weekend? He said, I want you to audition. Bring your drums to Mary Junior High School. I forgot the time. And I want you to audition. So I walk in and. There's three other, two other drummers. I'm sorry. There's three total. There's two other drummers. Mm -hmm. And this one guy, this guy, he has, he, he, he looked like he, he looked like he was going to kill it. He had a beautiful big Afro. He had a double bass drum and the most beautiful kit in the world. And I came in with like this little rinky dink. That's what we call it. I don't know if you guys know. <laughs> nah, that we know rinky dink. Yeah. Nah. Come on. I came, in with, I came in with the rinky dink kit, right? With like, one crash symbol, one ride symbol, and some hi-hats, one time. Mm. And this dude intimidated me. But when he started playing, he wasn't good. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And we were playing. I remember the audition like it was yesterday. And we were playing the OJs. The OJs had uh, backstabbers, 992 arguments. Same song. Uh, yeah, same song, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, right. That's that's Philly music, right? And right. Uh, when it was my turn, like I knew those songs cold, and so I, I I I I aced it, and I got the gig. So that weekend, the following weekend, he took me to Chicago, and we played uh, the weekend gig at a place called the Skyway, and I was 
15 years old. So you were just allowed to leave mm-hmm. the crib? My mom was okay with it. Like I talked to her. She trusted my teacher. Uh, and we drove to Chicago uh, from Cincinnati, did uh, two shows, and came back and had about $75. Mom was okay with that. <laughs> oh, you got okay. real money. Yeah. Damn. Okay. Well, that. That, that was pretty good money. That was seriously some good money. Right? That was awesome money. Shit. And, uh, and that was the beginning. That's not what your daddy paid, Amir? He didn't pay. Uh, what was my rate? In 1980, I made $100 a night. Um, so at the end of the week, I'd make $600. Wow. I, I was rich for like a, a an elementary school kid. <laughs> that's why I bought yeah. so many records. Um, yeah, that's and then by good. the time I became his band leader, he, he had me somewhere in between. I think in 83, I started at 150, no, 125 bucks a show. And then by the time the very last show before I, I, you know, the roots went to live in London, I think. What was I making then? Maybe like 375. So, yeah, but like, you know, four days with my dad, you know, that made me very popular. Yeah. At lunchtime. At lunchtime. <laughs> Hell yeah. Right, right, it's on a right. beer. Hell when yeah. Joined, when joined, like, you buy me a cheesesteak a beer? Like, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. All right. So in Cincinnati, are there any other notable musicians or songwriters or, or your fellow crew that we would know that was coming up with you at the time? Most of them you won't know, but the, the most important are the members of the group Midnight Star. And that would be Reggie Calloway and Vincent Calloway and Melvin Gentry and Bo Watson and Belinda Lips. Belinda. And yeah. And okay. they were serious. They were very serious. And they were the first ones. Oh, and there's also um, my friend Tuffy, who played, he's a keyboard player and he played with Zap. Oh, okay. okay. Right. And he sung, um, he sung that song, All Right, It's Going to Be uh-huh. All Right. He sung lead on that. Right. Um, so so there was the Midnight Star crew and Roger and the Human Body or Roger and the Vels or Zap or however you might know them. That was right. that crew. And the and we always felt that we felt the energy of Parliament Funkadelic somehow, some way. Like I remember going to Club Diplomat and it was a, a bunch of musicians that looked like they might be in parliament, right? Right. <laughs> and right. they smelled like they might be in parliament. <laughs> right. <That's important>. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was funky and everywhere. Um, and, and it was broken. And they had a lot of groups. There was one called the Over the Hill Gang. And but they all it was a whole funk movement. I just remember like it felt like they were on some tour because there was so many of these guys and they just kind of stopped at that club, played that night. So we were around them all. But the most important and meaningful were uh, Midnight Star. And those are the guys that we actually wrote with and they produced our first album with uh, with my band and kind of taught us the art of songwriting. Walk us through the process of what it took for a band to get local gigs. Are you localized as in Cincinnati only, or do you have it so that you can go out of state and those types of things? We were Cincinnati for the for the most part, and then Indianapolis, which was a hundred miles away. Okay, and and uh, it was a kind of a strange phenomenon um, when when we started when we were ready to play in the clubs. 
music started to change and this was probably like 77 something like that 76 77 mm-hmm. and cincinnati was slightly more progressive than like indianapolis which was um like i said 100 miles away and disco was taking over so there were no gigs in cincinnati i mean we played the clubs in cincinnati like there were like four or five clubs that we would play weekends but somebody turned me on to a club called the Zodiac Lounge in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. This was life-changing. Okay. So I, dri- I drive, I drive to Indianapolis with my band members, go to this club, see the club owner. And they hired us to play six nights a week. That didn't happen in Cincinnati. So now we're doing six nights a week, four shows per night, like four 45 minute sets per night, six nights a week. Per and night. Then, and you're doing hundred miles each each way? No, no we, we literally end up moving there. We got an apartment there. Okay. Like we got the gig, went back, got our gear, came back, stayed in the hotel for a couple of nights. Uh, really bad, cheap hotel. <laughs> um, I forgot what it was called. Maybe it was the Rico 8, something like that, right? Or the Motel 6. If it's summer yeah. in it, you're in trouble. If it's- <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It was those. Uh, so we got a little apartment and we ended up staying there for three or four, about four years playing clubs. And it went from one club to the next and all over the city. And that's where we really kind of learned. So what was it about that particular environment that was a jackpot moment as opposed to, you know, the the the, the city that Since, we would expect right. this wide open door of music to come from? Because the difference was entertainment nightly. Right. And and so that meant it was no longer a weekend thing that it wasn't it wasn't which weekends could that could be hobby, even though we were serious, that could be deemed hobby, whereas six nights a week, that's your job. OK, so you're saying before 77, a Monday night party somewhere wasn't a thing. Uh, no. Thursday night party wasn't a thing. Only Friday, Saturdays, and Sunday. Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday for the most part, right? Uh, and then, and then there might be uh, an occasional wedding, fashion show, something like that. But, but for the the clubs were only weekends. Uh, and we went to Indianapolis, and it was like about it was like seven or eight clubs that had entertainment every night, and all the bands were competing. And that's when I met some. That's when I realized that there was a different caliber of musicians. Like in Cincinnati, everybody was funk. We were all funk musicians. And some people could, you know, maybe jazz influenced, maybe a little blues influenced, but we were all funk. When I went to Indianapolis, which is where Babyface is from, mm-hmm. and Reggie Griffin, you might know Reggie Griffin, and Rayford Griffin, his brother, who's like this incredible fusion drummer, right? right. And it was just a, it was an entire community of really, really gifted musicians. I realized then that I wasn't long for drumming, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, they, they, they put us to shame. It was insane. The thing is, is I, I would think that if you're there for the specific duty or task to make people dance intricate arrangements would that matter i mean unless you do unless you're trying to do like get away by earth wind and fire or something i mean right and also what's what's the rehearsal regiment like and are you guys able to nail every song that comes down the path it's cover songs right obviously it's all cover songs so you know you know you learn all the rick james songs or whatever is hot you know right 
And we would do that in the daytime in the basement, you know, or, or at the club, you know, when we, we lived in the apartment, we would do it at the club during the day. Eventually we got a small house and we had a basement that we could rehearse in um, and try to record. Um, but yeah, it was still all, you're right. It was about dancing, but we have four sets. So the first set, you could do whatever you wanted to do because the club wasn't crowded yet. So that's when you could do experimental stuff and try out a new song that you may have written or, right. or okay. pretend to be returned to forever. I was going to say, you're going to say return to forever in like five seconds. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, you know it, right? <laughs> I knew you were going to say return to forever. I just knew you it. Yes, we played at it. You know, we're never Wait, quite. Can you explain enough. something? All right. Ex- explain one thing, though, because I think for every musician, they're either team weather report or team return to forever. Now, oh, that's great. In my real life, in my real life, I've. Okay, so amongst a, a certain caliber of musician friends I have, I've I've gone on record to say that, you know, I feel like a bad Philadelphian because I'm not exactly 100% on the Stanley Clark mm-hmm. bandwagon as I should be. Right. As right. a Philadelphian. Like, the song of his I love the most is so un-him, which is the Heaven Sent joint with Howard Hewitt. Right. But what was it about Return to Forever? Because I was always Team Weather Report, but what was it about Return to Forever that had you guys' attention? Because literally everyone your age, anyone born the latter half of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, there's a love for Return to Forever that, you know, and no, no, no I'm not even asking this adversarial because, yes, right. I love Lenny White. I love Chikoria, but I just never had someone explain to me what was it about return to forever so it was first it was chick korea it really was chick that that led that because the way he composed it felt like obviously it was jazz fusion but there was this classical element okay and it was this classical element and the way that they would play the way that they would like play riffs together you know uh like everybody's sort of playing the same riff you know um nobody else played like that like uh, and they found a way to do that and be and groove and be in the groove. Uh, and I was I, I like Stanley Clark, but not like Jaco Pastorius, like not even close for me personally. I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but yeah, I'm I'm team weather report in that conversation, like w- easily, right. yeah. easily. Yeah. And, and Joe Zawinul was way more soulful than like than Chick Corea. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did mercy, mercy, mercy for Cannonball Adderley. I mean, this boy is, this man is no joke. So I'm really probably a weather report guy, except that Lenny White, you you know, was just so bad, man. Exactly. You know, uh, but if I had to pick, I couldn't pick. (laughs) I I couldn't pick. I'm glad I don't have to. You said, you mentioned having a band, but what was the band's name? My band was called Essence. Wow. My band was called Pure Essence at okay. first. And and Pure Essence was it was some kind of take on stylistically, it was somewhere between Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind, and Fire, with the love of fusion music. Not the ability, but the love. <laughs> <laughs> that was 
That was a great way to <laughs> smooth it out. <laughs> All right, so let's let's move forward to okay. You're you're in Indianapolis now, or you're in Indiana, right? How did you how did you meet Babyface? Uh, so he had a band. He was in a band called Manchild. And uh, they were really good. And they were like stars, man. Everybody in the group was like, looked like they were six foot and and and, and, and weighed 150 pounds. They looked like just like everybody in the band looked like Mick Jagger. I mean, this is a rock star. <laughs> Look at these guys, man. Right. Um, and and Kenny was in the band. He's um, a guitar player. I didn't meet them when we when we were in. I didn't meet him when we had the band Essence, my first band. I literally met him after we started the group The Deal, right? Because uh, uh, um, a quick story was we sort of ran, my band Essence kind of ran out of gas. We got became complacent. We didn't renew. We didn't refresh. And eventually we kind of got kicked off the circuit. And this club owner, I got to tell you this. This club yeah. owner, yeah, name tell is, me. Yeah, tell his, me. His name is Walt Manning. He owns a club called the Night Flight. The Night Flight is the hippest club in Indianapolis. On one level, it's a DJ, and on the lower level, live band. And the the deal was, if you could get people to come from the disco downstairs, that's how you make your money. Hell yeah! So give us a small advance, but we would get the door, and. It'd be like a thousand people upstairs and and they they play off the wall. They were playing Donna Summers. They were playing like disco. It was in full, full tilt. Mm-hmm. And we were downstairs and like 15 people might come down. Half of them would like be people that we knew. And we had a couple of weeks off. I went to the club and asked the club owner, Walt, if I could get an advance, if I can get a hundred dollar advance for my band so I could like pay the rent, give my guys some food. And he says, there ain't going to be no advance because you're fired. And let me tell you why you're fired. You're fired because you guys suck. You're drive, you're boring. No one comes downstairs. You need to renew. You need to rip off a sleeve or dye your hair or do something because all of this this socially conscious thing you're doing is completely boring. You're out of step with the times. And I mean, he just read me, man. Wow. I was like, whoa, what year was this? This would have been 79, 80, something like that. Oh, I'm like, Mm. like, whoa. And y'all was still hanging on to like, got to give it up. Like songs from like 1976. Yeah, we're still, we're, yeah, we're there. And, 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 and early Earth, Wind and Fire, like, like the wrong Earth, Wind and Fire songs, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And this guy just read us, man. And then he goes into the cash register and he pulls a hundred dollar bill out and he throws it on the counter. He says, I'm going to give you the hundred dollar bill, but I never want to see you again. And you don't owe me the hundred, but you owe, it to somebody so pay it forward and get the hell out of here and fired us he was drunk and he was an alcoholic right oh mm-hmm. i was gonna say that's the best firing i ever heard i need to use that shit right? yeah yeah he gave so i got the hundred dollars now and i go back and i think about what the man is saying and i immediately knew he was right i immediately knew that we had somewhere slipped mm-hmm. and i was like okay so i need to bust this thing up and start all over and that's how we started the deal, right? Was um, so I my bass player, his name is Ko. He's my best my best friend also. Um, uh-huh. 
we let everybody else go. Kale. We said, yeah. you okay. know Kale. Yeah. Kale yeah. plays on all the records yeah, with man. me and Face and yeah. Whitney and Bobby and all that shit. Right. He's, right. he's really incredible. Really, really talented. Um, so he and I started the band. We first let everybody go, say, guys, we're going to end the band and it's just not working. It's run its course. So we went back to our hometown of Cincinnati and he and I just sat in either his mom's house or my mom's house. And we just kind of thought about like, who were the most talented kids that we went to school with that also had the presence of a star? Like we started thinking about it differently. We started thinking about it beyond like who could beyond talent, but that combination of talent and stardom, that's when that really sort of first came into my consciousness. And so we picked a couple of guys that we thought were really good. And we started the band, The Deal. We went back to Indianapolis, where we sort of gotten kicked off the circuit. Mm -hmm. And I went to the club owner and I said, just give us a week. Give us one week in the club and I'll show you. Because they lost confidence in us. And that week, Oh, I left something important out. Mm-hmm. The deal was a Prince copy band. <laughs> right. A copy band. What's sort of. not a cover, but a, just a copy. Stylistically. Like okay. we wanted to look like them. We wanted to play like them. We did some of their songs. We did some of the time, some of Prince. Right. <laughs> and we were completely like Minneapolis kids all of a sudden. All right. So can I ask, is... You know, and it's rare for me to, to ask someone who's actually of the age at the time it's happening. But when he came out, like, was it totally a this guy is just of a different ilk than everyone else? It was so obvious. Like, I didn't even know whether there's records or hits or not. I didn't really look at charts and all this stuff. Right. But it was so obvious that it was him. And I was and and also Bootsy co-signed it. I was looking at Black Beat magazine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys know that. Come on, yes. man. come on, man. Dude, I'm, this is Quest Love Supreme. I don't know, man. Y'all look like really young to me. We uh, got good but, lotion too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> moisturized. Yes. Uh, Black Beat but right on all Bootsy of that. Said, Bootsy said Prince is next. He said it in the magazine, and I was like, damn, I kind of thought so. But when he said it, that was like the the validation, right? And there was no there was no turning back prince was the prince was the king i grew up in an environment where he was taboo and you weren't not even you weren't allowed to every adult i knew hated prince right so that just made it even more like all right well let me see what they talking about but i just never been in an environment in which someone who is an adult or of the age like tell the story of them seeing it and being like, yo, I like this. That's because you come from older musicians, too, because my, my mother loved fucking Prince as soon as he popped out. It- oh, my mom told me don't play that in her house. Really? Everyone thought Prince was the devil, yo. Yeah, she's like, don't play that. Because he had a song called Incest is Everything is Said to Be, and she's like, you will not play that in my house. Oh, no. Right. Time out. You, all right, so when Dirty Mind comes out, now here's the weird thing. I mean, when For You came out, you know, he was in Ride On Magazine and all that stuff. And I, I have a sister who's slightly older than me. So her and her high school girlfriends were bored. And then, you know, when the second album came out with I Want to Be a Lover and all that stuff, they were bored. Now, the thing is, when Dirty Mind came out, especially in Philadelphia, I swear to you, maybe I heard Uptown once on the radio. 
Right. And besides Ride On Magazine, I would have never known what Dirty Mind was. So it's almost as if Dirty Mind never came out and we went right to the time and controversy. And I didn't even oh, wow. catch up. I didn't catch up on Dirty Mind until after Purple Rain. When then it was like, all right, you got to be completist and get everything. But right. Philly Philly Radio was not playing anything off of Dirty Mind. And I think by then, like my sister's love of that type, you know, it just sort of waned a little bit. Right. So as far as I knew, he just disappeared all of 1980. Wow. So you're saying that when Dirty Mind came out in real time. Oh, my God. It was guys a, got it and totally understood and got it. Everything about it, the way wow. that they dressed, everything they talked about, Party Up and Head and all these songs that like we were deep, deep, deep into Prince, like deep into it and just thought he was the greatest thing ever. Like in my mind, it was a flop and nobody was with it. And right. He quickly oh, that's like, crazy. recovered. Like, so. We, we didn't, you know, what's crazy is that at that time we were so into Prince that we didn't judge whether something was a success or not, because we were just so blown away by his, um, first of all, that he was playing everything and, mm. and, and doing all, all that was, that was, as far as I knew, that was unusual. Mm-hmm. And he was on this sort of punk thing. Right. And that was, he was, he was borrowing from new wave and, and, incorporating it into this sort of funk thing. He was just an original. It felt like an original to me. Was he? Was, so was it done in a way? Because I also know that, you know, Rick kind of had a miss with a miss with the Garden Love record, which I mean, I don't know if Big Time really could have saved that record, but he was really Rick James was trying to like really make a statement like here's my my star moment and really made a pop album. Right. And what's weird right. is I can't wait to get Leroy Burgess on the show, because if you listen to the intro of Big Time, you can clearly hear that edit. Like, I know the Leroy Burgess part of Big Time versus Rick's portion, which is basically I see Leroy Burgess adding that. It's like an eight bar piano intro that's clearly not Rick James. Right. And then they slice, splice uh, the rest of the song to it. But I don't know. For me. Ugh. Was was Rick not like in your mind? What was Rick James? Because he too was trying to establish punk, yes. punk and all that stuff. Rick was a hit maker, right? Okay. Rick had the hits, you know, Mary Jane and you and I, and uh, he had the hits, but he didn't have to start them to us, okay. right? He, he was actually a hit maker before Prince was, yeah, right. But we didn't focus on him. I don't know why. In Cincinnati, Indianapolis, the local bands all played Rick James songs. Everybody. Some people played them better than others. But that was in every local band in their set. But you didn't look at it as innovative? As I think back on it, it was. But at that moment, I didn't think so. I thought it was just another guy making hits. I just didn't. I never focused on it. It was years later that I looked back on it and said, wait a minute. This guy's insane. Like, right. right. You know, this guy wrote Square Biz. Like, this guy's like insanely talented. Didn't really know it at the time. Just didn't didn't quite catch it because there was something about Prince that just appealed to us more. Uh, and, And you know what I think it was like in Cincinnati, we heard black music, but we also listened to rock. 
right? We listen to a lot of rock music on the radio. Like, um, and so I think that that presence of, of punk rock and that presence of rock and the presence of funk, that blend, Prince, Prince kind of did all of that as one artist. Right. Uh, so something about that that really appealed to us. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Wait, now now I have to ask your audiences, were they receptive to it as well? Because this is also middle America. It's not exactly yeah. New York. How are they adapting to? Because y'all had the eyeliner too, right? I thought Babyface said y'all committed. Like y'all. Oh no, we eye- went all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, we yeah. went all the way. What we was did. his word? Glam, not glam. Uh, Bree. 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 Yes. Yes. Bree. Yes. Yeah, we were Bree. <laughs> we were Bree. Which meant the new, the new Bree. Uh-huh. New Bree, we right, the new right. Bree, right? We okay. were... We were our generation's version of whatever hip hop might have represented. Like we were, Hmm. but except you had to be really bold and daring and audacious and brave to pull it off because, you know, you're going to be criticized by everybody on a musician level, on a human level, right? People are going to question your sexuality and everything, right? You're putting a lot at risk here uh, to be a part of the movement. Um, So we went all the way. Eyeliner. The Jerry Curl, yeah, everything you know, the makeup. We would we went crazy with it, <laughs> uh, but but you know what's crazy is we didn't we didn't even audition for our record label. We never met our record label. We literally sent a photograph and a demo 
of two songs, Body Talk, three songs, Body Talk, a song called Just My Luck that Face wrote, and a song called I Surrender. We literally sent three songs and a photograph, and we got signed. To Dick Griffey? To Dick Griffey. That was your idea? No, we just, we gave it to our man. We had a manager. We shared a manager with Midnight Star. His name was Pablo Davis. Oh, okay, okay yeah. And he went to turn in, he went to Solar to turn in No Parking on the Dance Floor, which was yeah, Midnight Star's, Star's album. big album. Uh-huh. Right. And so we caught, a, we caught a tailwind because in that meeting, he said, <laughs> okay, I also have this yeah. new band out of Cincinnati called The Deal. And he shows them the photo, plays them the demo, and we got a record deal. Do you remember what was on the demo? Body Talk, Just My Luck. Oh, Body Talk, Just My Luck. Okay, that talk, was it, yeah. Just My Luck, and I Surrender. Ah, okay, gotcha. So the Body Talk, that is the demo. Is that the version we know, or yes. did you guys... Re- the recorded version is a little bit better. It's okay. a little bit better. Like, uh, yeah, because you'd appreciate this. The demo was all uh, the Oberheim drum machine. Right. And oh, the 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 Lynn drum. Not that one. No, the first. There was one called the DX. The DMX. DMX. Yes. Right. Okay. okay. And it had, like it was like looked like an Oberheim keyboard, and so that the 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 demo version was purely that the the recording had like real hi hats and real crash cymbals. That's the only difference. But it made it sound it, it sounded better. Damn, I I would like to hear that one. Then. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you know how the, the DMS was... The real hot was like... It's a whole different sound, right? And, right. And, and, and it moved differently. You okay. Know? So, so you kind of skipped a part. Okay. Uh, how did that version of the deal wind up being that right. version of the deal with all the members that we know? Yeah, because Babyface said it was some fights. So, yeah, him. I was trying to get back to how I met Face. Yeah. So, yes. so that band is playing the clubs and... You know, unlike my first band, Pure Essence, uh, the deal is packing them in. People are coming. Mm-hmm. Like this whole edge that we had and this androgyny that we seem to have and this music was, uh, it was a sensation a little bit, a local sensation. Mm-hmm. And and we went from having 15 people in the room to like 100 people and 110, 115, 120. Like, and we start having lines around. It was incredible. Like we had, we were a local success. If that had been the internet, we would have been trending. Like, you know, uh, we, we had a little buzz. So one night I've met face Kenny at the time, and he came to watch our band and his manager introduced me to him. All, all I remember is us looking at each other and saying hi. And then fast forward a few months later, a keyboard player friend of mine called and said, Hey man, Kenny Edmonds wants to, join your band. And I said, nah, he's not breed enough. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was like, nah, he don't have, he ain't got the thing, you know, he's like regular, he's normal, (laughs) you know, you know, no, he didn't have, and so I literally passed on it. And then Midnight Star, I hired their keyboard player, Bo Watson. I didn't hire, I asked him to come in and play a session for us because somebody paid for a session for the deal to record and I needed a keyboard player. So I called Bo Watson, who I'd known from the Indianapolis music circuit. And Bo came over 
and he listened and he played on the record with us. And he went back and told everybody in his band, like, these guys are on to something. So the next day, the manager comes, Reggie Calloway, everybody comes and hears us. And they say, well, we love what you guys are doing. We want to sign you. We want to sign you to our company called MidStar Productions. I was like, okay, this sounds good. This seems, this is a little bit better than playing at the club. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I'm liking this. So I go to the studio one night to visit them. They were recording. And there's this guy. It's dark. He's in the booth. And I can't see the guy, but he's singing this song called Play Another Slow Jam. This time, mm-hmm. make it sweet. And he's singing it. I'm like, who is this boy with this voice? This like this tender voice, like sounded so good. He comes out of the booth. As Kenny Edmonds, except he has got on a trench coat. He's got the Jerry curl. My <laughs> man is breed. He's completely breed. And I'm like, yo, this is the dude I just said he couldn't join the band. And I mean, he now he is he's suited up. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and and the most gifted of anybody I've ever met. I had never met anybody that gifted, right? That could really like write a song and make a demo and do all the parts and sing the background and and the lyrics were like like really poetry i never wow. met anybody like him never. all it took was a raincoat and some underwear and a jerry curl yeah no, and wait. Some- oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yes yes indeed glasses you know <laughs> and that was it man and uh, that's how we um that's how that version of the band so i asked him to join the band and uh, he said, what will I do? I said, well, I'd like you to be the guitar player, keyboard player, and and be a writer and, like, co-produce. Damn. But you can't sing because oh. we already have two lead singers. Right. And he was like, okay. So we went, we went, made all our demos, got a recording contract with Solar Records, and uh, he didn't sing on the first album. Wow. That changed. Yeah, <laughs> man. that was a flex. Was that a, you think that when he said okay, you know, in the back of his mind, he was he like, he was like yeah. you'll be back. Yeah. You'll be back. He, no, he was already set on doing a solo album, honestly. Okay. Even okay. though he was in our band, he was already in his mind, I'm gonna be a solo artist. Okay. Yeah. All right. So look, I mean, we've had everyone on the show, including non-solar signees. One of y'all yeah. are going to tell me a the real re- damn Dick story Griffey. about Jeff Griffey. Come on. Come on, L.A. Yeah. All right. Look. I love that, man. No, but I got you. Ask the question. Come on. Talk to me. Talk to me. What was he like? What was he like? Yeah, what was he like? We outside. First of all, you were in Indiana. You eventually going to have to go to Los Angeles. Talk about right. the move to that, but it's just the thing is, I keep hearing like these near Suge Knight stories of don't mess with Dick Griffey. Mm-hmm. What was Dick Griffey like? So the first time I met him, my first phone call after we put our record out, put out Body Talk, and it's starting to climb the charts, and he calls our house. I never met the man. He said, he, whoever answered, he says, let me speak to Antonio. That's how he mm-hmm. talked, by the way. I can imitate him really good. Mm-hmm. So I pick up the phone. Antonio, Dick Griffey. <laughs> that record, that body talk, the record's a smash. Right? And I just wanted to welcome you to the label. Everything was like kind of, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, 
so I went, so after that, fast forward a little, I go to LA and I meet him and I go into his office with Reggie Calloway because we just mixed our album went to turn it in and I meet him and him. And, but I was a side, I was just like the kid in the band. It was Reggie Calloway and Dick Griffey's meeting. And Dick said he wanted certain things to happen on the record. And Reggie was like, no, we're not doing that. So I immediately saw. Can you give me an idea of what his idea of what? What did he want? I don't remember what he wanted. Like, I don't remember, but. He was giving creative advice? Yeah, creative advice. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. He was really creative. Very. Like, he. Was he? he was, yes. Okay. Yes, he was. But more he than was. in that CEO way of, that's a hit. That's not a hit. What do you say, like, the vocals are too loud, or I don't like those drums, or? More like this is a hit versus okay. that. Or you should try this producer. Or you should oh. try this songwriter. Or, you know, putting Leon Silvers with the Shalimar, you know, yeah. or, like, that kind of stuff. Um, okay, I got you. Yeah, he was good. He was really good. So, so my first real encounter, my first real encounter was... First album comes out, second album. It's time to make the second album. And we make it, we make the album in Cincinnati, in Columbus, Ohio, at a studio. Mm -hmm. And we sent demos in to Dick Griffey. And he liked some stuff, some stuff he questioned. He had a particular fondness for Kenny. Um, he because Kenny would sing on demos and he was like, he thought he was really incredible. So the first my first encounter was. This song called Sweet November. Yes. That Babyface did for the deal, right? And I always thought Troop did that first. I forgot yeah, that y'all covered it. it. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so it's on the demo, and Dick Griffey hears it. And he says, Who is that singing Sweet November? I said, That's Kenny. I want that on the album. I said, Well, we had a problem. I said, What's the problem? But the problem is that we made a deal when we started the group that our two lead singers, Carlos and D, would do all the vocals on the album. That's Kenny singing. And he was like, well, that's a stupid deal. And either you put that song on the record or it ain't going to be no record. <laughs> oh. Hey, Got it. Kenny, your song's on the album. <laughs> and you Guess sang what? it. <laughs> Sweet November made the album, right? So that was my first sort of encounter. How are you taking the unofficial i guess you're now the fa the the figurehead the father of the group yeah i kind of always was i don't know I, it was my idea to go rent, get everybody i put it all on my shoulders and said I, you know if you guys yeah. rock with me i'll do my best to take care of you yeah it you seems know? like you so, from as you when you're hearing this about you now it makes sense that you were the one that kind of could bridge the gap between the business and the creative like you knew how to talk to both sides that's that's what it's I like. tried to. Yeah. yeah, I, 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 yeah, because I had to negotiate with the club owners, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, for for pay and when they wanted to deduct expenses and, you know, so yeah, I had to, I had to do the tough guy work. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. But, and they trusted me. You know, all of us went to high school together, by the way, except for Babyface, who was in Indianapolis. But the rest of the band, we all went to high school together. We were all in that choir class with Mr. Brown. And, you know, so we we were all really like good friends and grew up together um, in the same neighborhood. So um, there was a trust factor there. Since you're talking about the um, 
the Material Things album. Yeah. You know that album? This Dude, is Quest Love Supreme, man. I'm so impressed. <laughs> Bruh, you got to understand. I'm so impressed with you, man. I just got to tell you, man. I never met anybody with your That's level all of, us. of musicology. That's why they can't have a versus. Yeah. You know, I don't no, know. But my, 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 my question about Material Things is, and I always, I don't know why it is, but the the Tom Tom programming, I've never heard a song in which the kick drum and the Tom Toms have to compete with each other. Mix wise. <laughs> so I always wanted to know all that stuff, right? Who gets the final word on a final mix? Because okay, when I was younger, material things irked me because I was like, yo, those Tom Toms are way too loud for this song. They were. But as I got used to hearing it in my older age, I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I can see being innovative. But like, who, who back for those records? Was it the Callaway brothers that were leaning on the production? Was it, were you guys allowed a word in edgewise? Like, just as far as structuring the, the albums. Full disclosure. The first album called Street Beat was completely produced by Reggie Calloway. Okay. And the songs were co-written by the members of our band and members of Midnight Star. <laughs> okay. When it was time to make the second album, Material Things, uh, we had fallen out. Like you and the Calloway. Right? Us and, the, and Midnight Star, we had kind of fallen out. Gotcha. And Reggie didn't want to produce the second album. So Dick Griffey said, you produce it. So it was on me. I'm like, so me, Reggie didn't want to produce it, or you guys didn't want Reggie to produce it. We we wanted Reggie, but Reggie didn't want to do it. Gotcha. And I don't why know was why that? there was. I didn't know why. I thought there was some. It probably had something to do with money. Some. Some. He never said to me like, "I don't want to produce your record," but it felt businessy. Did he have that option again? Y'all still tell me nice guy stories about Dick Griffin. But does Reggie Calloway have an option to mess up the money by saying, you know what, I'm not going to produce the second album? Yeah, because he and Dick Griffey visited my apartment in Cincinnati and we played them demos that we worked on and they collectively decided which songs we should record. So oh, okay. he, Dick gave him a pass. Yeah, he let him he, he he let him sit it out. So Kenny and I like co-produced together. So all those decisions loud ass Tom songs too fast or that's, uh, or that's all me and Kenny producing for the very first time in our lives and wow. and having following a hit record that Reggie produced now it's on us and it was it was a complete stiff wow it was really? a complete stiff that's a good lesson for for class though that's that's weird amazing. it's weird yeah. for me all right so here this is what I'm just learning and you know I mean, I guess I alluded to the stuff I'm working on past summer soul, but um, mm -hmm. currently I haven't made an official announcement because, you know, I will say that there was a popular dance show mm -hmm. of the 70s, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and maybe other decades of which I'm learning that I'm learning that uh the 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 host of said uh dance show mm -hmm. has relationships with different uh ceos and 100%. no no matter what the state of 
the record is on the outside world because there's songs that were played on the show so many times that I would instantly thought, oh, that's a hit. One of them, which being material things like all of 1984's season, like if you get four spots on the most important dance portion of that show, Mm -hmm. then to me, that was like, oh, you have a bona fide hit. And it was only later that I figured out that material things didn't get the the same push that body talk and I surrender. I mean, you know, exactly. It simply wasn't good. It wasn't good. Were you guys scared and were you afraid of getting dropped? No, I didn't even think about it. I, I, you know, by the way, I've been dropped and fired a lot of times. I never think about it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so this wasn't the first time. No, no. I just got fired. From, I just got fired from the night flight. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm immune to it. You know, I love it. You ain't nobody till you get fired from somewhere. That's what they used to say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but no, no, we didn't think about getting dropped. All I thought about was, damn, those, this record just. I couldn't get it right, man. I couldn't get it right. I just couldn't get it right. I tried so many times, you know, because the studio, I mean, studio wasn't cheap, but we had it on lock so we could go in and mix it, press it, acetate, go to the club, play it at the club. It didn't sound right. We'd go back and try it again Mm -hmm. a couple of days and we tried everything. And then when we thought we had it right and we turned it in, the label apparently agreed because they made it the single. Uh, and it just didn't work. And it was just embarrassing more than anything. But it also put a fire in all of us. And I would say particularly myself and Kenny, it really put a fire into us that and we're competitive people. So we were like, we can't let Midnight Star be responsible for our success. And then when we get the shot, we blow it. Right. Let's get to work. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know you don't like this when this happens, but you know we got more in store for you. Stay tuned for two more episodes of this epic Questlove Supreme with the great L.A. Reed. While you're at it, feel free to check out our other ULS episode with Babyface as well. All right, see you all next time. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 